with working through this series, the series basically works through the idea that as we look at the message of Jesus, there are many laws, and I want to put the word laws in kind of inverted commas, ways in which we think, absolute convinced ways in which we think, in which our society thinks, and in fact, in ways that other societies think, where Jesus, in his message and in his person and who he is, confronts who we are. Now, that means one of two things. It means either we are wrong or it means that he is wrong. It can't be, it can't, we can't be neutral on that. We've, we've got to accept that there are many occasions where Jesus confronts us and it's either him or us. We initially think, therefore, of Jesus as the outlaw, outlaw to our ideas, confronting our ideas, but what he ultimately does is he confounds our ideas and brings a great hope to us. The one that we want to look at this afternoon is Jesus as the outlaw to our ideas of tolerance. Our ideas of tolerance that might not appear to be the most obvious text for us to look at when we come to that. But I hope as we work it through, we'll see how critically important it is as we look at this issue of tolerance. Tolerance has become, in our culture, in Western thinking, an absolute foundation. Uh, we, can, we can get rid of all sorts of things. We can... It, reject all sorts of things, the one thing that seems to have grown and grown and grown beyond, in fact, I would say it's grown into almost a kind of ugly caricature of what it originally aimed to be, is the idea of tolerance. Now, what, um, when I say an ugly caricature, tolerance originally looked like this. It said, tolerance says, in fact, the dictionary definition of tolerance says, I hold the right to have a different view on something to you. But I also absolutely defend your right to have that different view. I am not looking to absolutely impose my view on you. You are free to have your view as I am free to have my view. I respect that difference. Now, straight off the bat, I want to make a real kind of a comment on the Christian church. That is the basis on which the Christian church first emerged in Roman Britain. Uh, and in, sorry, in Roman society, in the Roman Empire. It demanded the right to have our own view. It was actually the first faith that said Christianity is something which is a personal religion, which we are not looking to impose on everybody else. We hope you love it, we hope you embrace it, but it is not one of imposition. We demand the right to have that freedom and liberty to worship as we see fit. Because what existed before in every culture was the imposition of a state construct. 
That's tolerance. What has happened in the past 2,000 years on many occasions is as soon as the church became the official state religion, it kind of flipped itself out and it became the imposer. It became the the people of power. Uh, And that's wrong. Actually, the church first came and said, we need the right as individuals to have that tolerant society, a pluralistic society where we have the right to worship as we see fit. And you have the right to worship as you see fit. That's how it came about originally. We've now reached a point, I want to suggest, where to be neutral is the only thing that is tolerated. And what that means is to be neutral is to say no view is actually right or wrong. There's a whole philosophy behind it, but basically the the idea of neutrality says you cannot claim that your view is better than mine, and I cannot claim that my view is better than yours. We live in a neutral world. To claim anything more is just out of sorts, out of acceptability. That's where we are. I want to see in this little text how Jesus stands in absolute confrontation to that idea in his own person and in what he says. Look at the way it opens up. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man he had, who had been mute, sorry, when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. That's all it says. Uh, this primarily is not all about our interpretation and understanding of demons and, and, and Jesus dealing in that particular sex, uh, situation. There are other times when we can look at that. Uh, we're not looking at that at this point in time. I just want to make the point initially that what is not under debate is whether the man actually radically and dramatically changed. You see the way this works out. Uh, Jesus was driving driving out a demon, uh, and as a result of that, the crowd were amazed, but some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that's how he's done it. The issue, you see, was not whether it had happened. The issue was by what power had it happened. That's the key issue at stake. That's the the drive of this particular bit of text. Whether it happened is not under debate. The, The onlookers see it. They see it happen. They see the response of the man, and they say, wow. Now, the key question is, how did it happen? How did it happen? I want to suggest first, um, first off, it is a question of by the power of good or the power of evil. That's the first starting point. Look at the way it opens up. Some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Beelzebub, that's a, that's a great uh, kind of just filled with all sorts of medieval ideas of paintings of strange demons and all of the rest of it. Do you know what Beelzebub actually uh, interprets out as accurately? Beelzebub interprets out as 
Lord of the Flies. Now, any of you who've done English Lit at school, that might just ring some bells because William Golding's book, Lord of the Flies, was actually, could just as easily have been entitled Beelzebub. Beelzebub. In fact, what the uh, people of the day were not saying, they weren't giving a kind of um, a fearful statement about the power, the evil power by which Jesus had performed this. They weren't saying it might be by that uh, hardly to be named Beelzebub. Actually, they were using a kind of uh, a, a disregarding, a kind of um, uninterest, not uninterested, in a, and a kind of a negative idea. Nothing to be worthy, nothing to be feared, nothing to be worthy. But the idea was Jesus has just done it by the bad side just by the bad ones. It's not good, it's bad. Who is he? By how and and through what power and through what authority is he doing what he is doing? To take it back to our first question, we cannot be neutral about this. Jesus demands that we come down on one side or the other. This is not a new idea. Well, It's really been talked about recently, but C.S. Lewis was talking about this a few decades ago. He recognized that one of the ways in which the message of Jesus was being changed and being shifted was to start to say, well, okay, Um, he, he really taught in a great way. He's a great religious leader. He's a good man. He brings a moral code. He brings something good. And he says, even back then he said this, well, just stop. That cannot be who Jesus is. He, you cannot just put him alongside the good religious leaders. He was so radical, he was so demanding, he was so, in one sense, confrontational that you cannot be neutral about him. He said it like this. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I think that's a great way of saying the demand that Jesus makes. It's in a way, do you see what Lewis is doing? He's taking his statement and taking us all the way back to 2,000 years ago and relating it to exactly what these religious leaders confronted Jesus with. By what power are you doing this? Are you doing it by the power of good or the power of evil? Are you doing it by the power of God or are you doing it by the power of something satanic? And Jesus says, in one sense, the ancients are much further on than us. They recognized that it had to be one or the other. And Lewis is confronting us and the Bible is confronting us today and it's saying we have to come to the same conclusion, who Jesus is. He's either a fool. I think Lewis described you can consign him to the equivalent of somebody who claims to be a poached egg. That's what he wrote in Mere Christianity. It's so ridiculous that you can just disregard him. 
Or you can say he is evil, or you can say he is who he claims to be. That's what that's the kind of, in one sense, that's the kind of intolerance to our thinking that Jesus brings. He demands that we confront his claims. He makes sure that we cannot live in this world of neutrality and relativity. He says behind the scenes, the things that go on are either good or they are evil. By which power are they being worked out? Now we go on to say, well, is that all Jesus says? Does he just say, does he just confront and say you need to work it out? Well, no, he doesn't. He doesn't leave us just asking the question, is it for good or is it for evil? He goes on to the next stage and he says, now I will describe to you why I am the God of the Bible, the Son of God, the one who has been promised, the Messiah, all of those different descriptions of who he claimed to be. He describes himself, therefore, in the second section as Christ, the strong man. Christ, the strong man. Verse 20 says this, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That word, that phrase, come upon you, is incredibly powerful. It's actually saying something like this. Without invitation, without request, without any appeal, the kingdom of God has exploded into your presence and therefore into the demand that you may give it, its, give it attention. It has come upon you. In other words, it's a bit sort of, it, it's so big, it's so overpowering, it's just there. You cannot get round it. You've, it's come upon you. It's like wave, a wave crashing over you, leaving you helpless, demanding that you respond to it. That's the kind of picture that we see. It has come upon you. The king, if I've done this by the finger of God, now the finger of God has had incredibly significant um, properties for the Jewish people. When we look back into the Old Testament, we see again and again the finger of God as the indelible mark of the clear working of God in the Old Testament. That's what the finger of God is all about. In other words, we see God moving, God working in such a way that it leaves us with no question of what's going on. And Jesus is saying, you know, when I've done what I've done, it's, the, it's like that. It carries that same kind of quality. If I've worked by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has exploded into your vision. And the same goes for us. Because here we are reading what would have been read just a few years after Jesus' ministry by other people. 
who would be confronted by exactly these claims as Luke wrote his account of the life of Jesus. And Jesus said to them after just a few years, through this word, you need to make an assessment of what went on there as Jesus drove out that demon and confronted the religious teachers. And we need to do the same today. The finger of God exploding the kingdom of God into our face. What is the kingdom of God? What's that, what is that idea of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the, is the idea of the whole hope of salvation. The power of life. The hope of redemption. The good news of God breaking in and saving people. And bringing a kingdom into existence for people to enter into of eternal hope. That's the whole idea of the kingdom, at least part of the idea of the kingdom. There's so much more to it. But it's saying breaking into into our presence is the possibility of life, eternal life, eternal hope, salvation. It's here, in other words, Jesus is saying. Now, what does that say about that first verse that we looked at? Here's a deaf uh, a, a man, sorry, a, a demon-possessed man who's, who was mute and Jesus deals with him. What does this say? It's not actually mostly about dealing with how that worked out. It's not mostly about what went on with that man. It is mostly about God displaying the coming of the kingdom, the potential for hope. In other words, Jesus is activity at this point in time is saying, it's here. It's arrived. The kingdom is here. This is how you get saved, by looking at this kingdom, in other words. He's saying, if you see this working out in the finger of God, it's like God working now right in front of you. It's hard to convey. How do I get this message across? How do I explain it? Imagine if God did something just right in front of us right now that was just so mind-blowing that it left us in absolutely no doubt that God was present with us, that this, by looking to that individual, that person, that is God saying, come to me and I will give you freedom from sin, forgiveness and eternal life. It's so dramatic. In other words, it's not actually about the man being dealt with. It's about the presence of Jesus. Imagine if that happened now, right now. It would demand that we deal with that question. Can I go to that Jesus, therefore, and be saved? And Jesus says, yes, come to me and be saved. That's what he's saying. Now look at the way that continues to unfold. Because he says, the reality is that you have previously been a hostage. Describe it like that. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus is saying, effectively, I'm the stronger man. Previously, you've been in the possession of a strong man. It's a bit like that man who was in the possession of Satan. 
You've previously been in that possession. In fact, everyone who is born into this world is in that possession. In one sense, we could say, by nature, we are all demon-possessed. That sounds really kind of, you know, exorcist and all of that jazz. The reality is that we are in that condition of being under the, the Bible describes it, as the slave of sin. As being under the power of the authorities of this world. And Jesus says, I've broken in to free you. And the way that I free you is showing that I have a greater power and a greater authority over the one who previously had you in bondage. I've released you and you now are my possession. Isn't that great news? That Jesus has that kind of power and that kind of authority and continues to have that kind of power and that kind of authority over the cosmic crisis of the battle of good and evil. Jesus breaks in and he has the power to defeat the evil one. That's the message that Jesus brings us. He is the stronger one. question is, as Jesus breaks into our experiences, and I know for many he has broken in and taken a hold of your lives and a hold of my life, and we are now, we know we are in his possession. That's great. But there is, I think, as this unfolds, another kind of breaking in that can take place. It's not quite that hopeful. And therefore it demands that you and I be very clear on the claim that Jesus is making. Because, as the the third idea, is we can have a house swept clean but unoccupied. Look at how it unfolds. First thing that Jesus says is this. This is, in one sense, one of the most sounding, intolerant statements that our society can hear. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. That clear. There are no sides. There are no kind of uh, degrees. There are no kind of, you know, gray areas It's this serious. You are with me or you are against me. Now look at how it unfolds from there. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. What is going on there? That just sounds kind of spirity and spirits floating around and all of that kind of... Let's just take it 
on face value as to what Jesus is saying. He's saying this, look, the reality is that you are ensnared by one. And there is the potential that the coming of my presence can rid you and bring you some cleaning, some sense of liberty. I've seen this on many occasions where the issues of people's lives have been so dramatic that it has caused them to think seriously about the Christian message. And as they've thought seriously about the Christian message, it has begun to fall into place, it has begun to settle in their minds, it has begun to give them a sense of hope outside of that issue that seemed so overwhelming and impossible to defeat. It's as though their hearts and minds, to some sense, were swept clean. And they get to that point of being, I feel a bit relieved. I feel free. But it hasn't been replaced with the deep indwelling of the presence of God. There is a sense of freedom from the fears before, but it is not followed through with trust in Jesus. And time and time and time again, that has resulted with somebody then drifting off and being taken by all sorts of other things. They become slaves to all sorts of other things that hold them in bondage that never held them before. The the seven, the word seven here, when Jesus speaks, then it goes and takes seven other spirits. It's almost saying it's filled up with some sort of completeness, some sort of finality. It's grabbed a hold of them. It's like it was swept clean. They got so close But then in the liberty that they enjoyed, they do not find that replaced with a fullness in Jesus. It's filled with loving life. Loving life. That is a terrible thing in one sense. And now it's a great thing to enjoy life. Of course it's a great thing to enjoy life. But if life... And life and its enjoyments ultimately take your eyes off Jesus. Take your mind and your heart elsewhere so that you are temporarily loving this life to the detriment of eternally loving Jesus. Then loving this life is far more destructive than the issue that you were facing before. That's the idea. It's like it's grabbed you to its completion. Jesus has said, I've come to give you a full and an abundant life. That does not mean, as Matt really helped us see last week, that does not mean a life which is filled with prosperity and blessing now. It's a life which is filled with hope for eternity. Jesus is saying, I will not allow anything else to be equal to me. 
A life filled and consumed with loving and following me is the way. There is no other way. So this idea of this kind of picture that Jesus is painting is, look, three steps. Here's this man. He's been held in captive in one particular way. He's been freed, but he's now in a, he's kind of in that no man's land. He's now got the potential to respond to that freedom that he's enjoyed. How is he going to respond to that freedom? Is he going to fill that life that he's been given with a love for Jesus? Or is he going to be now freed to just fill it up with seven other spirits that are going to consume him and take his time? That is the key. Now, the reality is, folks, many of us are in that point of knowing that God has grabbed a hold of us and he's filling our lives with him, and that is great. There are some who are saying, I I just can't even see this. Well, Jesus is breaking in and he's saying, just look at, you've got to make an assessment of me because you can't be impartial about me. You can't be neutral. But then there are some of us here who are at that point of saying, okay, I know I've been swept clear of that. What am I going to fill it with right now? C.S. Lewis continues with the idea of a house. He says this, listen to this, this is really helpful. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. They're all the jobs of a living house that need to be done. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably <clears throat> and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. I think that's great. Because the reality is when the house has been swept clear and God comes and dwells within us, the reality is do not be surprised when it gets tough. When the knocking about of our experience means that life is tough. Because that is the intolerance of God to our lives and our expectations and our way of seeing things, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he says, I am making something better than you could ever imagine. 